Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 63 of the North Meet South web podcast. Web podcast. Hey, everybody, thanks for tuning in. Uh, once again, uh, we have no idea what we're going to talk about, but that's fine because we've got lots of stuff going on in our day to days that is probably worth mentioning. So, hmm. um, yeah, let's see. Should we start with? Should we start with? I have a couple ideas. I have a few ideas. We've always Three. got ideas. We, we always make stuff up as we go along, and it always seems to work out. I can start if you want. I can talk about this cool Pray thing we've been doing. Cool. Okay. So Sentry is what we use for error tracking right now. I'm so sorry, Frank and uh, Marcel. Apologize. At some point we may switch. Who knows, right? It's just like one of those things. That would be the hardest part for them, don't you think? Getting that? people that are, well, people like you and I, well, just people in general that are so deeply entrenched and using Sentry across all of their stuff already exactly. or Honey Badger or, totally. um, you know, Rollbar, like getting people to swap. That would yes. be the the tricky thing. I think that's the sort of like same idea for like David and Chris. However, as I talked to David, he was like, yeah, we're not trying to like sell people who are already have a solution they're happy with. We're trying to target mm-hmm. anybody who's either dissatisfied with their current solution or is a person who's new to the scene who is looking to do this and wants an easy, easy, easy setup, which I think is great because the deal is like... Yeah the market is only growing. Like Laravel is continuing to rise on, you know, like the number of stars on GitHub, the number of everything's going up. So you get new developers involved all the time who maybe have never done testing before or who have never done this type of testing before and need a really easy to set up environment. And boom, there you go. There's the solution, right? So all the people who are new coming into the ecosystem, they are going to have basically default solution sets provided to them via... Mm -hmm. Frank and uh, Marcel and David and Chris. And so, yeah, I think I think they'll be just fine, even if people like you and I don't end up switching. Um, yeah. But I do agree. I do agree. That seemed like a large challenge to me as well. And I, I don't think, you know, maybe, maybe at some point we switch over. Possible. Quite possible. Yeah. But not, not, not yet. So one of the things that Sentry has, which I thought was very interesting, but took us a while to get on board with, uh, mainly just because of the setup, and we didn't really know how exactly we were going to do it, is release tracking. So the way that they do release tracking is you set up a um, hook into Sentry using they have the Sentry API that you can run on Node, or you can actually just do it through co requests. And you essentially say, here is a new deployment that I'm going to be pushing or who's in here's a new release that I'm that I'm building. And you can say, here's the version of the release that you can attach whatever version number you want. And then you can associate commits with that version, you tie it in, you basically give Sentry access to your GitHub repo. And then you say, I am giving you these commits that are going in as mm-hmm. for this release. Okay. So then in addition to creating the release, you also have a deployment of the release. So you can create the release ahead of time. So like when you deploy to master, when you push to master, you can say, hey, GitHub, and we're using GitHub Actions in this case. We say GitHub Action, go ahead and grab the commits that are in this release and push it over to Sentry and tell them we're making this release. Then what Mm -hmm. we do is in Envoyer, we uh, grab the SHA of the release that we have. We write it to a .sentry releases file, and then we make an additional call request that says, hey, Sentry, we just deployed that release that we talked about earlier. And Sentry then says, okay, I will activate that release. And then what it does is it will allow you to track any new bugs that are introduced with that release. Or you can say like when you see an error in your log, you can say this will be solved in our next release. So when the next release comes in, it wipes them all out, right? And says, okay, no longer. The other cool thing that it does is it looks at all the commits that you've done since your last release and it can detect who there is to blame based on who made the commit in the file that caused the error, right? So it will say, oh, interesting. This um, console command failed at this line. And it looks like Michael Lee was the last one to edit that code. And this is the first time that bug has been introduced alert Michael Lee that he has a problem that might be causing some some issues over here, right? Yeah. Which um, all of that was really, really interesting to me. So we did that. We created uh, that, that basically that workflow that 
I talked about there. And it wasn't really possible to do before in Envoyer in our continuous deployment sort of situation because by the time it gets to Envoyer, it's just a tarball. It's just like a file. There is no Git. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you had to kind of do it. You had to figure out those commits, the associating of the commits before you got to Envoyer. And so yeah, now that we sure. have access to GitHub Actions, we can do that. With you guys using something like, what are you using, GitLabs? Yeah. That wouldn't be a problem yeah. at all because you guys don't have to wait for GitHub Actions. We had to get approved into the beta program and all that stuff. Yeah, but with, okay. yeah. with GitLabs, you can just so, do that automatically. <clears throat> the way that we've always done it is part of our, because we do the Envoyer style, like the Capistrano style deployments where we do the rolling releases. Sure. And as part of our deploy process, we will actually do a Git head, whatever the command is, and we'll grab the SHA and we put it into a version file. Okay. And then in the Sentry config, it gives you like one of the configuration options is a release. You can specify the release in the in the Sentry config. And so we'll just cat that file out and and get the contents of it and say like this is the release. And that's worked for a long time and it always does put the commit char in there and we can say, you know, when an issue comes in that it will be fixed in the next release. But I get these pop-ups in Sentry when I log into the Sentry dashboard now that say you can yeah. set up release tracking. Yeah. And I get the feeling either something has changed or we've never had it set up quite right that it seems to think for whatever reason that we're not, you know, that we've not got it set up. So what is it, what it's doing for you? And we've we've done similar things, right? Where we say essentially, yeah, like you said, like in your dot sent or you're in your config slash sentry or whatever, you can specify the release version and it will say, mm. yes, like here it is. If you've not told them that you have a release in advance, it will just associate those those errors with that particular version that you're tagging it with and just say, here, these are all grouped together. Mm-hmm. But, and I we got those same errors and basically that was kind of what prompted us to say, like, okay, well, what, are, what is it that we're missing here? And so the things that, that they say that you're missing is building a release with your commits, right? And that's where you get, I think, the most value, which is kind of where we were yeah. at, is we didn't have yet the commits associated with the release. And so they couldn't basically give us any insights into what is the file that is causing the problem and who last changed it. So yeah, I guess those are kind of the other, the other two steps. And I suppose you could either... By deploying a release, you can when you deploy the release, you can say whether it's in staging or whether it's in production or whether it's whatever. So if you go into Sentry and go into your um, your project and then click releases, it'll show you here are the releases and here's what stage they're in. So we'll have like releases, production, releases, staging, and it'll show you like mm-hmm. the different spots that they're at. So you could do that yeah, too. Yeah, different environments. Yeah. yeah, different environments. Yeah. So it's not that hard to set up really. Mm-hmm. It's just really like two two extra steps. And the first time you do it, I believe, since we're using the Sentry API, it just associates, if you've never done it before, it just associates the last 20 commits and says, give us the last 20 commits. Then the next time you do it, it'll look at your current, it'll basically grab the last 20 commits and then say, if any of these, if any, you know, if the last commit that you made was in this history, we'll just do the diff. So we'll just grab like, you know, this one up to up to the current and we'll just include those mm-hmm. as the as the list. For us, that works pretty okay. Honestly, for us, it doesn't really matter because we make like one commit to master at a time. It's just a big squash merge yeah. that just goes yeah. in. Which I don't know if that's actually super beneficial at this point or not, because you kind of miss the particular commit that caused it, but you still can see who it yeah. who it was caused by. So so you're you're squashing the individual PRs, right? Yes. So if I opened a PR, you'd squash all of the commits in my PR when you when you merge that, as opposed to because we sometimes, depending on the size of our releases, we might actually create a release branch and then merge everything into that branch and then yeah. merge the release branch because sometimes we have to update dependencies. Yeah, sure. So for example, we would update our models package. In, in our local environment, we'd push that up to a separate repository and the test will fail on that merge request that uses that dependency because, you know, we haven't merged and released the model package. So we've got to merge the model package. We've got to tag it. Yeah, yeah. We then have to create the release branch. We have to compose our update, then run the test suite, right. locally, make sure everything is still working, then push it up and then let CI go about its business. So... It's, yes, it's a, we do that sometimes. It's an involved process. It's a tedious process. I wish there was a better way of doing it, but because we need to share those those models between a few different apps, we're starting to change that a little bit now and we're starting to sort of 
where there's places where we would duplicate, we're starting to put things into like a, a central API or a B2B, depending on whether though that functionality needs to be accessed only internally, or if it needs to be accessed by third parties. And then, you know, for example, if we wanted to take payments, then we would, you know, in our members area, we want to take payments from customers directly, but in our CRM, we want to take payments on behalf of customers that call up whatever. So sure. instead of sense. having the payment functionality on both the CRM and the members area, mm-hmm. we would just have a thin API client that would handle sending off the request to the B2B and the B2B would be the central source of truth in terms of how we process that payment and what we do once we've taken the payment, you know, yep. check to see if the customer should be unsuspended, see if we need to, you know, send them an invoice, totally whatever. Totally makes sense, yeah. So there's, there's pros and cons for both approaches, Yeah. Yeah, it's like your own internal API. Yeah, I mean, it comes with mm-hmm. its own set of challenges, right? You're going to have to like version that API. So in case you ever make a change that's going to be breaking in one and not the other, you end up having the same problem, right? Pretty much. Mm-hmm. We've we've been able to get around that for the most part, like breaking changes to those APIs. So yeah, but yeah, yeah. it's I, I, I'm with you though. I've We've had those same situations where we have like internal packages that we've created that have to be updated in multiple spots. And yeah, I get it. I get it. It happens. Pros and cons, pros and cons. But pros and cons. You weigh them up and you take with the good, the bad, obviously. Yeah, right. So that's kind of been one of our uh, uh, quality of life uh, improvements recently, I guess you'd say. It was quite a bit of work, honestly, to get it all set up. But we've got it all set up now and I'm kind of like, okay, great, it's set up. It's like, um, now what? But I think the rule, yeah. the thing that you can do in Sentry is that you can actually create rules so that it will automatically assign a issue based on who was the person who created the pro- the problem, basically. Yeah. So no longer do I have to like go in and like triage. Okay, whose problem is this? You know, and some this person usually works on this repo. I guess it's up to them. Let's have them. You know. And then the mm-hmm. nice thing is, straight, straight from Sentry, you can actually tag a. Uh, you can create an issue straight from Sentry yeah, with like the, yeah. a link to it and a, and a kind of like a, the trace, a stack trace. The stack trace, stuff. yeah. Yeah, right, yep. right. Yeah, so those are kind of handy little things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah nice. So now all we got to do is get Sentry to sponsor us. What in the world? <laughs> right? Seriously. One day, one day. Free advertisement for them right there. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what's going on in your life? What's going on over at uh, your place? You were saying that you were, we were trying to figure out you were talking about upgrading to Laravel 6. We have not mm. yet. We haven't done that yet. Um, Jason McCreary updated one of our old applications to 5.8. And I was like, should we just put it up to 6? He's like, um. Eh. And this was a couple of weeks ago, granted. He's like, I might wait a couple more weeks. He's like, we've got a lot of package developers that are sort of lagging behind on that. He said, so I've mm-hmm. had people rolling back to 5.8 just because they've, you know, they did a 6.0 shift and then it's like they realized that the vendors that they're using don't have a 6.0 compatible release of a package yeah. that they need, right? So he's like, ah, I would just wait a couple more weeks and and then, you know, whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we, same, same with us. We typically wait a couple of weeks to allow everyone to update. I think this time around in terms of packages has been a bit trickier because we've had a major version bump. So a lot of packages that we depend on were like 5.0 star. And so it worked for five, 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 six, seven, eight, but now they're on six. A whole bunch of things have broken. So it was a matter of going to figure out, is there a PR to those packages that haven't been tagged yet? Do we need to submit a, you know, submit a PR to, to update the composer.json? Because largely the functionality has remained the same. Nothing's really broken. It's just a matter of adding, you know, pipe carrot 6.0 into the composer.json in terms of support for Laravel framework. Yep. There were a couple of packages that we were using on that haven't been updated for two years and have been marked as, you know, abandoned by the owner. So then it was like, well, do we fork this? And then there was one package yeah, we were using, yeah. which was just a trait. So we thought we'll stuff it. We're not going to fork it and then have to maintain it. We'll just pull it in that one file into our package and, and just use that directly rather than pulling in another dependency. So yeah, we did, we did try the 5.8 to 6.0, probably about two weeks after six came out and that was a hold up for us then, but we looked at it again last week and, you know, bit the bullet on in terms of, you know, either bringing things in or submitting merge requests or pull requests for things that needed to be updated. So we have got one of our applications in production now running 6.0. We had all kinds of fun and games with that. I never really got to the bottom of it. Basically we, we deployed 
you know, we all the tests passed, everything was fine. We deployed to production and then we started having database issues. And I thought, well, the database has been a bit, little bit flaky. Like it's probably just that we'll, we'll let it sit. It'll come right in a few minutes. Uh, fast forward like an hour, we were still having issues and I was tearing my hair out trying to figure out because I thought nothing should be broken in terms of the application. And because it was not just the application that we'd updated that was having issues, it was, you know, that was our members area, but our CRM was having issues and another one of our applications was having issues. And I thought, well, it can't possibly be the code that we deployed on, right, it must on be the, the members database. area yeah. because it's it's different, you know, the different applications, right. different yeah. servers, all that kind of stuff. So we didn't even look at that for a while. And I thought, you know, just for just for fun and games, let's uh, roll back the release to the previous one, which was 5.8, and straight away everything was working again and everything stabilized across all of the Weird. applications. What's that thought, about? Mm. So I'm not exactly sure what the cause of that was. I think something changed under the hood in the way that Laravel talks to the database because we could see on the firewall that the database pulled something like 50 gig of traffic across in that time. Dang. Now, I, d- I don't know what it was. It's not like there was millions of queries being run. It's just it was coincident, too coincidentally timed to have been anything else. We think... We've had issues in the past with Laravel and Proxy SQL, and well, so you guys the way using that, Proxy SQL. Well, we were, uh, we're not anymore. I was gonna say we need to loop back to that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we we had issues in the past with Proxy SQL and Laravel in the way that Laravel handles its like manages its database connections and it doesn't really close them off. Oh, weird. Um, there, there, there's an issue on the proxy SQL repository that basically says eh, Laravel does this. There's not anything they're going to fix in proxy SQL, but we bumped on it again. And because proxy SQL will inspect the database queries and then pass them through, right? it's possible that it was like rewriting them in some manner that was causing them to misbehave. So sure. we, for the connection that was causing issues, we actually swapped it over to use HA proxy which does the same kind of thing. It is, you know, it's, it's HA proxy is for high availability, but it it doesn't do anything with the traffic. It just takes whatever you give it and passes it along to wherever it needs to be, you know, between one or two or 10 or whatever, how many hosts, and it just passes it along and handles load balancing that way. So that pretty much solved all the issues that we had. As I said, I, I never got to the bottom of it. It was, it was weird that it broke at all, but... So are you, are you on 6 now or are you back on 5.8? No, no. So that, that application is on 6 now and it's been running fine since we switched over to HA Proxy, which, okay. I mean, our plan was to move to HA Proxy anyway in our new production environments. So that just gave us a little nudge to sort of do it now rather than waiting and, you know, adding HA Proxy on top of a whole new production environment as well. So... The, the new environment should be a lot of fun, lots of compute, lots of storage, lots of processing, you know, oomph under the hood. And that'll give us high availability between diverse locations and things like that as well. So, so questions about that. that spin. So Go were on. you using proxy SQL to, to provide load balancing? Um, we were using it kind of. We had um, we were using it was my a, understanding the, that proxy SQL doesn't actually provide like failover sort of. It just can. You have to tell it to failover. I'm pretty like you can give it host groups, and I'm pretty sure it does have down detection. So if a server goes away, really it'll okay, redirect I did the not, traffic. I did not realize that it did. That was sort of the hole yeah. that we had. So we were we were considering using something like proxy SQL that would, you know, handle that sort of failover because we had like a couple i don't know it was like a month where our database was being really really flaky and mm-hmm. i mean it would just caused downtime and everything would just flop everything would just fail yeah. and it would be like for an hour or not probably for an hour probably like a half hour and then we reboot it and then come back up and the thing would be fine until the next day and then i was like oh my gosh mm-hmm. so this happened for a while and so we were like okay what about this proxy sql but then we looked at it and we we're like i don't think it actually provides failover it just yeah. provides like whatever yeah, I mean, originally we were using it to prepare to move our database from here in SA to where the new data center is to the the new environment. So we were going to replicate our existing database to the new environment and then to transparently, t- transparently access it, 
we're going to go through the proxy and just like flick the proxy and say, okay, now go and look at the new database, which we never ended up doing. So uh, we're, we're better off longer term now with, with HA proxy anyway, I think. Um, and, and then we'll we'll run all of the the database that servers themselves will run in a multi-master setup anyway. Okay, so you guys have like you'll have one uh, master, one slave, and kind of like it'll write. So the slave will just basically replicate the master. So it's it's multi-master. So what's that? I'm not sure what that is. Um, so basically, you have two two masters and a third. You actually have three servers in that environment. So you would have. A multi-master, so you would write to either of them, and then the third server is responsible for maintaining quorum between them to make sure that the records are all the same. So if one goes away, then you can seamlessly swap to the other one. Whereas in a master or a primary secondary situation, if the primary goes away, the secondary is typically only a read-only node because right, you're replicating right, exactly. to it. Correct. Whereas in a primary primary you can write to either server and then the third the quorum server is responsible for making sure that all the records replicate to all the servers and maintains consistency between them so that's using something called galera is it like eventually consistent yeah i mean it's you know we're talking milliseconds it's not like minutes but yeah okay gotcha that makes sense okay interesting okay so does what does ha proxy do then does it provide the sort of the same things that proxy sql was doing but just not the the problems with laravel because HA proxy doesn't inspect the traffic, because HA proxy can be used gotcha. to proxy HTTP traffic, or you know okay. we're, we're using it for MySQL. You know, there's a number of things it can be used for. Uh, so you know, it's, basically it's just more a transparent little... proxy, but handles the load balancing of traffic. So it just handles like what, like you just point the DNS towards HA proxy, and then it just pushes the traffic mm-hmm. to one of one of any number of servers that you have available for it. Yeah. Cool. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. Okay. So it'll be good once we get over there and that'll that'll solve some issues. It's the first real big step towards migrating all of our applications and all of our servers and all of our infrastructure over to this new pro- uh, new production environment as well. So nice. Once we can replicate gigs of database, then <laughs> then we'll be then we'll be flying. Yeah. So we um I think what we ended up deciding is we were we were kind of going back and forth. We were like, okay, do we host our own master, master, slave, right? Sort of deal. Do we do this? But then it's like, okay, we still have the same issues for like when we have to handle like change windows. We still have to like reboot in a specific order or make sure that everything stays up in a certain, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. And it was just going to be headaches. We're like, okay, how do we solve this? And then we're like, hey, you know what? Why don't we just do RDS? So I think <laughs> we're going to do that and it's going to solve yeah. all of our problems. So it's going to handle yeah. replication. It's going to handle high availability. It's going to handle all that. And I mean, obviously you pay a price for it, but... Mm-hmm. But that's what it is, and we also have now a VPN set up with with Amazon, so that we have you know it's encrypted from us to mm-hmm. them and back, so that we don't you know it's a lot it's just safer. Yeah, so that's Look, pretty cool when, too. We're fortunate because we have people that are responsible for managing it. If I had to do it myself, I certainly wouldn't be doing exactly. It. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't have to do it either. But there's guys in my office who do, and they just like yeah, it's a little bit indiscriminate. Like if they just decide to reboot it or whatever, we don't have a high availability situation, right? So there is no secondary server. So like when they take the database yeah. server down, if anything is expecting to talk to it, everything just like freaks out. Like no, it, my SQL yeah. went away, and then you just get you come in in the morning to like ten thousand errors in Sentry. Like you get this, yeah. um, you know, you get the spike you detection. You have been rate limited. Yeah, yeah exactly. Detection. Pretty much, pretty much. Spike detection was just activated on 10 of your repos or 10 of your projects. Yeah. Like, what the heck? Awesome. So yeah, that's what we're going to be doing is moving to RDS, which I'm pretty stoked about actually, because then I can get away from Spassy Backup too, because I don't yeah. have to do that anymore because so it's just... Are you you're going to RDS with MySQL or are you going to switch to Aurora? Oh, I think MySQL, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I... I, you know, to be honest, I'm I'm kind of uneducated about that. I'm not exactly sure what that is when you say Aurora. I'm assuming it's just another MySQL compliant, like yeah, Aurora or? is the Amazon's MySQL compliant. It's it's meant for you know running in a you know in that environment. I don't know the specifics yeah. on. It. I just know that yeah, yeah. To I be think real it's a little honest, bit cheaper as well. But oh, okay, yeah. Our size isn't really that large. I mean, we're talking about internal applications yeah. we're running here. So yeah, this yeah. is like. You know they're they're significant in size, but they're not they're not like you know typical at scale. I don't know if I say I don't know if typical is even the right word, but they're not like really large databases. I guess is the easiest way to say that. So it's not going to mm-hmm. be a massive hit as far as that's concerned. So there'll certainly be a little bit more delay, like a tiny bit more delay, just because it's not on the server that's like sitting next to it. 
It'll, yeah. you, know, you have like latency, uh, but I don't think it should be a big deal. So yeah, that was a concern for us as well. They're like, you know, people are like, oh, it's going to be 30, 30 milliseconds of latency. I'm like, yeah, 30 milliseconds of latency, but it's going to stay up as opposed exactly. to That's you know, exactly eight right. milliseconds of latency, but it could fall over at any minute. <laughs> right. And so for us, that's just like, okay, we're just going to optimize our, our queries and, or just cache some stuff, which, um, so this is, this is the other thing. Like, so on our intranet page, we had a couple things that were hitting HTTP endpoints that were like blocking the request from loading, right? Cause we were doing it on the mm-hmm. server side and then pulling it over and I was like, screw that. We're not doing that anymore, ever. No more HTTP requests. The intranet page needs to load it like now, like everything right needs away. to load like yeah. immediately. So we're warming the cache in the background every one minute, like on certain things and every five <laughs> minutes, like, so like. So like system status, like if there's anything that's down, like if our phones are down or if something's down, you know, like the system status, it's like, hey, by the way, phones are, we, we're aware that phones are down right now or whatever. That like warms in the cache in the background every one minute or else it was going to yeah. be an API request out all the time. So it's fine. Yeah, I did a I did a bit of optimization the other day. We had a query that as our customer base has grown, it would basically look, we've got 121 points of interconnect around the country and each one of those has got, you know, X hundred or X thousand customers on it. And then each one of those customers has a session that reports whether they're online or not. Yeah, yeah. And Laravel makes this really easy. You can do, you know, point of interconnect, colon, colon, with uh, services dot current session. Easy. But when you've got all of them and you've got thousands of them and you're trying to load this all into an eloquent collection, what happens? Nothing good. You get that, you know, memory allocation exhausted when trying to allocate X bytes. So I went through it and because we were loading all of the models and all of that into memory and we didn't, we never used any of it. So I I went into the Jonathan Rennick handbook and I went in and and replaced all of those widths with with counts and then just returned the numbers. And that page went from, you know, timing out after 30 seconds and exploding in a ball of, overused memory to loading in less than i think it was about two seconds like it's still a lot of data and yeah. a lot of queries that it has to run but with you know down to two seconds the page is basically instant for for what it's doing so yeah it's nice and those are the kind of things that you can kind of predict knowing that loading all of those models is going to be nasty but when you're writing it in a development environment where you don't have thousands of records or you're not anticipating some level of growth or you think, you know, it looks efficient. You look at, you know, you look at the bug bar and you go, yeah, that looks fine. It's only running three queries and that's fine. But yeah, as, as Jonathan pointed out in his talk at Laracon US this year, that the, the number of queries is not the only metric and the speed of those queries is not the only metric. You also have to consider memory utilization and how many models you're actually hydrating. So um, I think, he, I know that he mentioned that he'd written that plugin for debug bar to show them yeah, the hydrated yeah. models. I, I don't, know, don't if know if that ever got merged in. It'd be I good to follow either. up. Yeah. Yeah. That's when, a good point. When, if, even when he hears this episode, maybe he can let us know or yeah. we can dig into it ourselves and figure it out. But it'd be good to have that because that's, that's that would a really, be, yeah. and it's a really useful thing to have to know, you know, is that number increasing the more records I'm returning to the page? And if it is, you know, being more mindful of whether or not that's a smart thing to be doing in terms of scalability. Totally. Um, there's this girl I've been following recently, Julia Evans. Uh, she's like a, like a SQL nerd and she's pretty amazing and very, very, very smart. And she's been teaching me a lot about really interesting like uh, window functions in SQL, subqueries, you know, a lot of the same stuff that Jonathan Rennick is talking about, but she's pretty smart, smart chick and has a really good way of explaining this. Uh, stuff. Nice. One of the interesting ones that she posted recently was a diagram for how SQL queries actually run. So you always write a SQL query with select first, but select is actually like the fifth thing that's called. So when you have this chart in your head, it actually makes sense for where, like why you can't do a, like why you can't do a where after a group by or whatever. It's because mm-hmm. group by is done after where. So it's just interesting. Uh, but she's a, she's, Really good person to follow. It's at B0RK on uh, Bork. Twitter. Bork. Yeah. I don't I don't know what that's about, but uh, she makes some pretty Bork, cool Bork, comics. Bork, yeah. Bork, so Bork, check Bork, that out. Bork, Bork. 
The other thing that I wanted to talk about today, which I thought was sort of interesting, maybe, uh, we've talked about job middlewares, which is something new that's landed in Laravel 6. And we've talked mm-hmm. about it on the Laravel News podcast. And we're like, what could we use that for? Like, where would that be interesting at? So I think I might have an example, but it might also deal with uh, rate limiting your queued jobs. Um, mm-hmm. So I have situations where I think it might be, I think it might be both. I think they're both interesting. But uh, the one situation that I came into where we were talking about some way that this would be useful was in this context. So we have claimants that we reach out to on occasion and say, hey, you know, you set up a reminder to, you know, make your payment at this time of the month. Here's your text message or your email reminder to let you know, hey, by the way, you asked for that, right? We have to be very, very careful in the number of times we text message or the number of times we email somebody though. And we have to be very cognizant and have record of the exact messages that we sent them in the case that Mm -hmm. there's some compliance or regulator that comes and says, hey, you were, you know, somebody said that you texted them a hundred times in an afternoon, right? We need to be Mm -hmm. able to say, no, we didn't actually, like, here's what Mm -hmm. we actually did. So we have to keep track of all that. So you know, there's a lot of laws related to how often you can contact people and if you have their consent or not and whatever. And so one of the things that we wanted to put in place is essentially a middleware, if you will, that will check to see how many contacts we've had within a period of time and essentially rate limit our contact of that person. So that if there's a person in our office who is trying to contact them via text message, uh, we can say, nope, that person has already been messaged today. You cannot contact them again. Or if they've come in contacted twice, we say, well, it doesn't really matter what the message is. You can call them, uh, maybe, or email, but you cannot text message them. Text yeah. message is really the big sensitive one. Like it's very protected. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, what we were looking at is how we could use those job middlewares to basically attach those onto any job that's going to send a text message and say, look at our list of notifications that we've had with this person in the last 24 hours and determine if you're allowed to current, to send a text message to that person or not. And then if not, respond with the appropriate status code and message to the person who is requesting that text message to go out. So that was the first use that I've found in our current applications that would be really handy to attach to these jobs. And the nice thing is, if we have multiple jobs that are responsible for text messaging this person, all we have to do is write the middleware once and then attach it to any of those jobs that are doing the text mm-hmm. messaging, right? So just, yeah. you know, here's five jobs that send five different types of text messages. Some of them maybe even be automated. Some of them maybe manual, whatever. We just attach that one middleware that says, look at their notifications for this file number and with the notification type being SMS. And if there's been more than two within the last 24 hours, rate limit and say, no, you cannot. You can't do that. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I think that's a good use for it. I think Spasiov or Frake the other day was tweeting about that. They've built a rate limiting thing package. I think it's specifically for Redis. I don't know that it's necessarily jobs, but the 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 underlying concept and the functionality is the same. So, what was what was it specifically? Do you remember? Not kind of not off the top of my head. Because there's also this idea of rate limiting jobs in. PHP now, if you're using Redis. So they have uh, specifying mm-hmm. max jobs attempts or timeout values. So you can specify the maximum number of times a job may be attempted with tries. We've probably all done that before where we say, okay, you have a max of three tries, right? And you can either specify that on the worker that's actually doing it, yeah. or you can specify it on the job itself by saying uh, tries as a public property. Yeah. You also have time-based attempts, which is interesting. So it basically just says you can try as many times as you want until five minutes has elapsed, and then you should stop trying. Um, mm-hmm. So that's an interesting option. You have timeout, which basically says work for 30 seconds and then and then fail. But then you also have these rate limits, but it only works really with Redis. So you can throttle your queued jobs by time or by concurrency. So you can say only this mm-hmm. many every... So allow 10 every 60 seconds. So this is great for if you're interacting with an API. So we have, for example, one application where we are querying Outlook's like Office 365's Outlook API. And there is a rate limit on that. And so we can specify you can only have this many this often, which is really handy because it's very clear in the documentation how many there are. But without something like this throttle method, it's nearly impossible to try and figure out how you stop jobs from running. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. This, make, this makes it really nice. 
and it's a little bit odd to set up, but but it is possible. Yeah, I mean, it's all in the documentation. That was pretty yeah, interesting. this one uh, is it is job middleware, so that's kind of handy. It's this Laravel rate limited job middleware is the package from uh, Sparsy. So it is a middleware that can rate limit jobs, not just uh, on the Redis. So. The default allows you only five jobs to be executed per second and any jobs that are not allowed will be released for five seconds. But it doesn't look necessarily like there's conditional logic. Oh, you can customize the behavior where you provide a middleware method on the job and you can say it's a rate limited middleware, allow every... So I guess you could probably do something in there to to configure what actually triggers you know doing the sms lookup and things like that sure huh that's cool i'll have to look that up yeah we'll put a link in the show notes cool uh so yeah that's like that was like one of the first uh things that i found in that uh job metalware since we've talked about it i was like oh yeah that makes Mm. sense i should definitely do that i should definitely do that um okay what else we got we can Mm. we can touch on then ping me if we want let's do that yeah so um Basically, Michael has been solo developing this thing since we started <laughs> pretty much with the exception of the landing page, which was um, kind of a uh, evening thing. I've been working on a, a side project, which you've maybe seen on Twitter if you follow me. It's called go.spreadtruth.com. So Spreadtruth is the nonprofit that I work for on Fridays, which is uh, awesome. And they've got this uh, platform that I helped rebuild for them last year. But they used some illustrations from a guy who used to work at Spread Truth. His name is Phil Borst. He's super, super talented animator, actually. And he made some illustrations like probably like three or four years ago for a Christmas card for Spread Truth. And so we decided to resurrect them and put them on the main uh, main <laughs> site. So I've been doing that as well as a lot of other changes that that have been required to get their registration launched for this year. And so that was launched October 1st. So we're kind of going through last round little changes here before I'm done with that. And then it's full time on then ping me. Nice. Uh, kind of as a sidebar here, I used Sizzy. Is it Sizzy or Sizzy? I think yeah. it's Sizzy. Sizzy. Sizzy for the first time. And oh my word, was it amazing. <laughs> it was so yeah. nice because especially when you're having to do like a responsive di- design from scratch, like you would be in Tailwind, right? And this is the same thing I ha- that happened with uh, when I was designing our landing page, Michael, for then ping me, is you feel like you have to like, you, you know, you're constantly switching from small to large because one thing that you do, changing one thing kind of affects all the other sizes, right? So you have to kind of be able to see all of them at once and using Chrome DevTools is not an ideal way to do this. So Sizzy makes it so simple and on Adam Wathen's live streams, he has his like extra small, small, medium, large, extra large setup breakpoints on Sizzy. Yeah. And so I've, I have I set that up in mine as well, and it made an amazing amount of difference. So this is the first website that I can say with quite a bit of confidence that looks good in every my, my mode from like the 5S all the way up to the iPad, all the way up to a desktop in both uh, portrait and landscape, like looks sane in all of them. Like there's no breaks that I found as I was going between them. So that was pretty incredible. That was a great experience. And it's a decently complex. I mean, if you look at it, you'd say, oh, it's not that complex. But there's Z indexes, there's negative margins, there's, you know, crazy background images swapping out in different Mm -hmm. places. And the great thing was I only had to write maybe like two little blocks of custom CSS to get it to work. Everything else was in Tailwind. I didn't know that Z indexes were in Tailwind and they worked. Like I couldn't believe that. Like the Z indexes based on like screen breaks, like responsive sizes worked like perfectly. I could not believe it. It was such an amazing experience. And so it was really, really cool to be able to design that in Sizzy and Tailwind. And it just felt like magic. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I got to give it a go at some stage. I mean, our main sort of CRM application at the moment, we only really care about desktop users. So it's it's pretty easy. But in terms of any of the freelance stuff that I'm doing and, and certainly for our members area, which we're planning on revamping later on in this year, early in the new year, making sure that it works across all of the viewports will be key for us. So, we're, I mean, we're using Bulmer at the moment. We're going to switch the tail in, but yeah. we're, um, we're using a really 
I think like version 0.3 or 0.4 of Bulma and upgrading it to anything recent is going to be a real pain. So we may as well just start over from scratch. Totally. So yeah, definitely worth checking it out. And it shouldn't take that long, honestly. No, I mean, we built now a skeleton and then we develop like a card and some table, you know, classes and things sure. like that. And it's, it's pretty much good to go. So yeah, so I was messing with that too. So there's, I mean, so I'm still struggling a little bit with that, like extracting components because I had a component that I extracted and it worked fine for the most part, unless I wanted to like change padding or something. So it's like, you know, you have to kind of figure out what are the pieces that you want to be a part of the button and what are the pieces that you don't. So like mm. you kind of have to say, all right, so I'm only interested maybe in like the coloring. So I want the background color, the text, and then hover color and active state and all those to be defined on the on the button maybe, right? But then you kind of leave margin and padding up to the person who's actually going to be consuming it and where it's going to be in the particular layout, right? But then I also have this issue of like, okay, well, what if I need the text to be larger? Do I define that in the button or do I let the surrounding context define that as well? So yeah, you just have these sort of you have these sort of trade offs, right? Yeah, I know. Shake yeah. your head. I, I've still got this cough. It's ridiculous. So I'm, I'm working through that. I'm working through which which pieces yeah. do I define on there? Which pieces do I let the context uh, define? But even even at that, it was still a, like I said, really good experience. Yeah, but something working through. Yeah, would it be good because uh, Steve and and Adam put up their Tailwind UI yeah. landing page That's the other really day. Good. So that I said to I mean, message Adam. I'm like, damn son, this page. And all it is is a is a title, a form, and this scrolling thing. But it just looks clean. Yeah, all the does. designs, like there is dozens and dozens of designs of different fake UIs that they've built, and I'm I'm looking forward to it, especially because a lot of their stuff is like black and white yeah. in terms of primary color is black and things like that, which suits us fine because our colors are red and black, and it's very very likely that we're going to use black for our primary buttons because you don't really want to use red because it has negative connotations most of the time yep uh, for better or worse but yeah i'm looking forward i said uh i said <laughs> when steve tweeted it i said can i just give you money now and you figure it out later when you give it to me so yeah yeah that's definitely funny. check that that's at tailwindui.com yeah i'm really looking forward to that as well uh it's been a cool project to see steve tweet out this stuff and i'm like oh my gosh like i'm gonna use that right now and honestly even for the most part i almost feel like i could look at the designs and like implement it myself with Tailwind. I mean, for the most part, like Steve's designs is what's really, that's what's killer about it. Like you get that for free pretty much. It's just like, yeah. and then, and then on top of that, they give you the, um, you know, they give it, they give you all the responsive code. All the HTML, it work. Yeah. 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 It's quite and, incredible. And watching Adam build, he did the, the pricing table the other day on a live stream, which I went through and watched. And it was so comforting to see that, him go, you know what, this design that we've done for mobile isn't going to just become desktop. So he just hid the whole mobile thing on on the desktop view and then just duplicated the whole lot for desktop. So that made me feel a lot better about myself because I've done that before. And I oh, thought yeah, this, it's... this feels dirty, but it also feels like it's the only way. And apparently it is. So Yeah, sometimes it is. You know, like I've found the same thing. I've found a lot of freedom in, in that. Like in... I think Adam was pretty much the first person to essentially give me permission to do that. Like as I watched him, it was like, yeah, I'm just going to hide this. It's like, oh yeah, I, that's an option. I can That can totally make sense. Because sometimes you literally wrestle with the same code for like an hour trying to get it to fit so perfectly. And it's like, it literally does not matter. Like it just yep. doesn't matter. It's not, I mean, depending of course on how many DOM nodes you're actually going to be loading and hiding, right? But yeah. for the vast majority of the time, it just does not make that big of a difference to hide yeah. the whole thing and, and just show a different version. Yeah. It's cheap. It's cheap. It is right? it's cheap. It's HTML. It all gets compressed and G-zipped and whatever exactly. else over the wire anyway. So Yeah, exactly. Yep, yep. Cool. Well, that's all I got for today, man. Uh, how's yeah. um, how's Laracon AU going? It looks like the... Oh, good, let me good. just say, I looked at it the other day. The site just looks incredible. I mean, looks amazing. And you've got a pretty solid lineup this year. Um, looks like yeah. you've got quite a few great speakers. So that's going to be awesome. Yeah. We we made a conscious effort this year to... I knew very early on that we weren't going to get Adam and Steve and, and Taylor um, and Matt back. It's a it's a huge, huge journey for, for those guys, especially they've got, you know, families and stuff. And, and Taylor did a bit of 
a bit of travel himself this year. They went over to Europe and whatever. So I knew fairly early on that we weren't going to have those guys come out again this year, unfortunately. But we made a very conscious effort on the back of or conscious decision on the back of that to make sure that we balance the speaker lineup with some some known people, you know, the people that sell the tickets kind of thing. And then to balance that out with local speakers. And we I think we've got five or six first time speakers, which I'm excited about that, you know, bringing some new new perspectives into the, you know, into Laracon, especially for us, because we've because it's harder to get people to come from overseas. Yeah, it's sure. more expensive for us to bring them over here. Um, it's a lot of travel. To get some 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 new voices and some new perspectives is is really important, I think, in terms of keeping the the audience invigorated because you don't want to have not that I don't like hearing from you know the the same the same you know Adams and Taylors and Matts and and all that kind of stuff. I love hearing their talks because they've always got something interesting to say, but keeping the audiences invigorated and making them come back and actually wanting to see the talks. Cause I know you and I have discussed this and a lot of people say that the conference is less about the talks and more about the, you know, the, the experiences that you yeah. have with the attendees. Yeah, for sure. So I, I want to balance that, as I said, new ideas, new voices, new people in, and you know, to make people actually want to see the talks as well as hanging out with their friends and, and making the personal connections. So I think, sort of being forced into it a little bit, but being able to have that luxury and, and being able to put on sort of five or six first-time speakers is really exciting for, for my perspective as, as an organizer. Absolutely. Everything's coming up really quickly now. We we sent off all the artwork to have the, the T-shirts done, to have all of our um, banners and, yeah, the and light boxes looks and amazing. things made up. It looks amazing. Um, so, you know, Steve did the website for us again this year. So thanks to Steve Shoga and... Uh, Noemi Olvera from Titan did our our artwork for the the logo that we're going to put on the t-shirts and the badges and stuff. So that's all been sent off. Um, yeah. I think we've got nine nine early bird tickets left. We're closing that off uh, in about nine hours, if my maths is right. Maybe my my maths isn't right. Ten hours. In ten hours, we're going to close off the early bird, um, and then you know, I think we're we're about nine tickets away from capacity anyway so you know we've sold the tickets well even with the you know lack of superstar speakers this year so i'm i'm excited we've got the shorter format and we've got some different topics to to what we've seen at previous laracons which i think is going to be really good and and we're doing a a little bit of different stuff this year in terms of um, presentation format we're going to do some may may turn out to be a disaster but when you organize a conference, you can pretty much try anything once, I guess. So we're going to exactly. do some live... Uh, lightning talks? Live, not lightning talks. We're going to do some lightning talks. It may be just like myself, Freik, and I just make some stuff up on the spot at this point. But we're going to do some uh, live trivia. So I found... Oh, a, that'll, be fo- that'll be cool. Yeah. Wes Boss and uh, Scott Talinsky were talking about this like months ago on the Syntax podcast a product that they used at a conference that they attended to do a thing. So we're going to use that as a, as a means to give away some prizes as well. So having the 30 minute time slots gives us a bit of wiggle room in terms of sprinkling some extra stuff in that isn't conference talks, but that that kind of keeps the audience engaged. So looking forward to it. Um, I'm also looking forward to having a few days away from work. Re, Re, Eli, and I are flying over on the Monday for the conference, which is on the Thursday, and we're going to hang out in Sydney for a couple of days and go and check out the zoo and the aquarium and things like that just to unwind a little bit and recharge yeah, the batteries absolutely. before getting slammed with everything. Yeah, for sure. Eli's getting so big, man. He's looking great. Huge. He's looking so stinky. It's cute. funny, though. He We took him to see the pediatrician yesterday, and everything's going well. He's at like 9.2 kilos, which... I swear he doesn't like he just grazes all day. He's always eating. There's always food in his hand, always chewing on something, and he just doesn't put on any weight. And I wish I had his metabolism. <laughs> um, I don't know where he gets it from, but my cousin, whose son is, I think six or seven weeks old, she came over to weigh him last night, and he's like more than half of Eli's weight already. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's he's a little hilarious. monster baby. So he was three weeks early as well, but because he was big. Whereas Eli yeah. came 
flying into this world. That's awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. And you guys got family pictures the other day. Those looked awesome too. Yeah, we had the photos um, cool. last week and we went and picked out our 10 favorites yesterday. So in the next couple of weeks, they'll edit the photographer will edit them all up and we'll get um, Hopefully a nice see print them on Twitter. up. And yeah. Yeah. We'll I'm sure Ray will share them once we get get our hands on the on the digitals. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, cool. All right, dude. Uh thanks for uh being patient with me the other night. Everybody, I fell asleep again last night. I was supposed to we were supposed to do this show yesterday. Yeah. And um I'm in bed and I always do this. I was like, I'm going to take a quick nap and then I'm going to get up because yesterday it was just a beast of a day. I was so tired. And so I was like, I'm going to get up real quick. Or, you know, I'm going to take a nap real quick and then I'll get up. And uh, so then it was like 1130. We usually record at 1030. Yeah. My wife's like, Jake, Jake, you're supposed to do that podcast. I'm like, oh, crap. So I text <laughs> Michael. He's like, I, I get the I get the messages on Telegram. Like, hey, where are you? <laughs> Ronry. I'm so Ronry. <laughs> The gift. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, thanks for being patient. Uh, this is episode 63. Uh, thanks for tuning in. If you liked uh, the show, feel free to rate us up in your podcatcher of choice or tell your friends about us. Hit us up on Twitter with any questions at Michael Dorinda at Jake Bennett or at North South Audio. And you can find show notes for this episode at North Meet South dot audio slash 63. That's yep. it, everyone. Thanks so much for uh, hanging out with us. We'll see you yeah. in two weeks. And Michael, you can shut off your live stream after this because in the last Laravel <laughs> News podcast, he was streaming an empty office for about an hour after the fact, yeah. I think. So, Oops. Oopsies. Hey, in case the anything weird happens, I don't think anything will, but in case anything does, we're moving this podcast to Transistor.fm in the next couple of weeks. So the next, the next time an episode drops from us after this one will be on Justin Jackson and John Buddha's homegrown <laughs> podcasting service. So looking forward to finally getting a chance to support those guys and, and the great work they're doing. So check yeah, out their podcast as well. They're at well, they're at sas.transistor.fm, I think, is their okay. their podcast. So definitely check those guys out. They've been chronicling their journey of building that platform since they started it at the beginning of 2018. And it's been a it's interesting to follow along. Not only as they come across and solve challenges in building the business, but also just hearing them developers as podcast hosts and uh, building the the rapport with the audience. Um, For sure. And every, every week, I look forward to hearing about Junta. <laughs> I haven't been listening, so I don't know what that means. But I'm sure those of you who are who are listeners will get the reference. All right, everybody. Thanks so much. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. See you all. Peace. Bye. Bye.